0: For the week of Wednesday, October 31st, 2018, Happy Halloween. This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk with the founder and CEO of The Riveter, Amy Nelson, about the work and meeting space that she's designed to meet the needs of women in business. And then for this last show before the midterm election, we talk with our friend Chris Petzold, founder and head of Indivisible Washington's 8th, about what is at stake, about what we need to do to keep going for this final push to November 6th, and about the historic role Indivisible visible members are playing right
1: now. I think the history books are going to be talking about us at this point in our nation's history. And also, I just feel like I'm saving our country for my son. This is incredibly personal to me, and I'm fighting for the country that I believe in.
0: That is all coming up, so stay with us. In 2018, only 4% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women, meaning that there are actually more people named John leading Fortune 500 companies in America than there are women. Uh, Women are far less likely to be promoted, and the wage gap still persists, and most studies show that it is likely to do so for the foreseeable future. My guest Amy Nelson decided to do something about it to help women in business by creating The Riveter. The Riveter is a work and community space designed for and by women with two locations in Seattle and another. That is just opened in Bellevue, in addition to two new locations in Los Angeles, and plans for many others across the country. And Amy Nelson joins us now. Hi, Amy. Hi. So, you know, I want to talk about The Riveter and how it works, but I would like to just start by talking a little bit about your background. So you are a very successful attorney and you practice corporate litigation for a decade. Uh, corporate litigation happens in environments that are primarily by and for men, one would imagine. So is is this in part where the inspiration for The Riveter came from?
2: It is. No. So I was a corporate litigator for a decade. I worked on Wall Street for part of that um, and was often the only woman in the room. Um, For me, all of the issues about the gender gap in corporate America really came to a head when I became a mother. Um, I had my first daughter in 2014, and I felt like from the day I announced I was pregnant, I was seen as a different person in the workplace. And I think that experience is not uncommon. Um, I remember reading Lean In at a certain point, I think when I was pregnant with my first. And there's a statistic. It's just a footnote, and I feel like it should be really the center of the book um, but there's a footnote that reads 43% of highly trained professional women in America off ramps after they have children. And to me, that was so shocking because it meant that if this is true, the system is broken, we all know it, and we're not doing anything to fix it. And so that led me down the path of all of these questions of, of what is a woman's place in corporate America? Where are women going when they're leaving? Because the, the media narrative is that women are going home, but the truth is that so many of them are entering a second or third act. They're starting companies. They're freelancing. They're working in in that future of work. Um, And so the Riveter was built to be a place for those women and and men who work with them or want to be a part of that mission um, to grow.
0: Right. Yeah, I should stress that it is not solely uh, for women. And you made a conscious decision to include men uh, as part of the work environment in in the Riveter. Uh, Tell us a little bit about why you decided to do that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am really optimistic about men and all genders in America. I think um, when we built the Riveter, we wanted to uh, not make gender a a qualification to membership. I think that it's really important when you think about changing the future of work to recognize that it will take all genders to make a dent in the way it it looks today. You'd mentioned when we started um, talking today that there are more CEOs named John of Fortune 500 companies, and there are women, and, and this is true, right? And so if you want to change the way corporate America looks, or if you want to change the way the entrepreneurial landscape works, women can't do it alone. I often think about um, suffragettes. You know, women in America fought for a 100 years for the right to vote, and men fought alongside them, and it was men ultimately that voted in the constitutional amendment whereupon women earned the right to vote. And so if we had that work together, that wouldn't have happened. And I truly believe that's the effort it will take to make corporate America look different and be a place where there is true equity of opportunity.
0: Right. So collaboration is key there. You know, I do want to talk about some of the ways that the Riveter is fundamentally different from other office workspaces like, say, WeWork, which is uh, another uh, competitor there. You've said that the Riveter, quote, looks at the future of what work looks like when it's designed by women. What are some of the key differences from standard work environments that largely cater to men?
2: So, I mean, from a physical perspective, the way we've designed the space is to create a lot of open space. Uh, Eighty-five percent of women who start businesses are working alone or in small teams. And so they might not want to walk in and silo themselves off in an office. And that's how most of corporate America and traditional co-working spaces are built. So the Riveter is built with more of an open floor plan where our members can come in, they can interact, collaborate. And then also, we've really built in the idea of part-time memberships. A lot of co-working spaces require you to join on a full-time basis, and we know that a lot of our members are doing 20 different things, or their job requires them to be out and about. Um, So we've really built in as much flexibility as possible um, by offering these part-time memberships, by the fact that all of our members can visit all of our spaces in a city at no additional cost. Um, And and then the other part of it is we've, we've built in all of this programming and community to really help fuel our members' businesses and lives. We have everything from weekly venture capital office hours to um, pitch clinics to meetings with Banks to talk about bank
0: loans. Yeah, I want to talk about all of that stuff because I think that's such an important component uh, to what you do. But just kind of talking about the way that the space is physically set up. You also mentioned mm-hmm. that uh, women in business tend to be more collaborative and your, yes. uh, your space really does emphasize uh, more opportunities for networking, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. That is what it is built for.
0: You know, uh, from everything that you're saying, and because this show does reach a very, very activist oriented uh, listenership, what you're talking about seems very conducive to the way that community groups and activists work. Do you have people who use the space in that capacity?
2: We absolutely do. We really invite that into our spaces. And earlier this year, uh, when um, the Trump administration was separating families at the border, you know, I really. I was struggling with it. I'm I'm the mother of three small daughters who are four, two, and one. And watching the scenes unfold on the news and reading the stories and, and the media, I I had trouble processing. And yeah. I really wanted to find a way I could help. And so, you know, I thought, you know, what I do have is I have space. And so we actually started a campaign called um, All Doors Open, where we opened our doors to any organization or individual working on reunification efforts. And then I actually reached out to a number of other co-working spaces across the country that were founded by women. And within 48 hours, we got 28 organizations to sign on to our All Doors Open effort. Um, The space is definitely a place where uh, activists and organizers can and should gather.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and in fact, uh, I was first introduced to this space by some uh, speakers that have appeared at your venue as well. And I, I will be putting up a link to The the Riveter on IndivisiblePodcast.org so people can check out uh, some of the events that are open to the public down the line. Um, so you were talking about some of the ways that uh, women face funding uh, inequities. Uh, women-owned businesses really tend to not be able to, to fundraise at the same level that, that male-owned businesses do. Talk a little bit about that gap, if you would, and how the Riveter uh, works in ways to balance that.
2: Yeah, the funding gap for women-owned businesses is stunning. Um, women founders in each of the last two years received less than 3% of venture capital dollars, which, wow. I mean, that, that number makes absolutely no sense. But more relevant to more people and also stunning in its own right is about small business loans. Women, small business owners, receive one in every $23 in small business loans. And so that's also a problem that we need to tackle. I mean, when you look at that juxtaposed against the fact that women are starting businesses at five times the rate of men, there is an enormous gap there. Yeah, that and doesn't make sense. Needs yeah. To be fixed. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so it needs to be fixed. And so what we do. One thing that I really believe is that when you keep putting people in front of each other, of one another, who aren't normally in front of one another, that's a way to make change. So that's why we have these venture capital office hours, because if we can continue to put female founders in front of male investors, um, and then I can't hear from anybody that it's a pipeline problem, Hmm. (laughs) which is an excuse that I really hate. Um, And that, you know, you tend to normalize something that maybe perhaps wasn't normal before. Um, I think so much of building a company is building a network. And, and knocking on doors. And so I want to be able to, to open that access as much as possible through the Riveter.
0: Well, something else that you do that is kind of related to that is it's called the Riveter School. Uh, and these are a series of courses designed to help women in business. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, we really talk with our members about what kind of support and programming they need to build their businesses. So we do everything on the one hand from, you know, building diverse teams and, and hiring and building a corporate culture to social media 101, kind of the nuts and bolts that you need to grow your businesses, to uh, putting together financial projections. What is your runway? What is your cash flow? So really across the spectrum. Interestingly, um, after I started The Riveter, we started working with corporations too. Uh, Corporations came to us and said, you know, we'd really like to understand how we can actually work within the space of retaining women and recruiting women. So we've also built out programming for corporations where they can come and we can work with their employees on unconscious bias training and leadership and negotiations. So that's been really fun as well.
0: What you So one of the programs in the Riveter School is called Career Catalyst, uh, which is designed to help women who uh, change industries or, as we mentioned earlier, uh, take a hiatus from the workplace, um, which often happens during child rearing. And so I'm curious how your own experiences, and you refer to it as off-ramping, uh, how your own experiences informed this particular coursework.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. My experience is slightly different in that I went straight from my last job to a meeting for my new startup, um, so didn't really have the space where I took uh, time off to work fully in the home. Um, but I did change industries, and I think that it has been, you know, my own experience has really informed how the Riveter has been built because when you're switching industries and starting again the best thing that can happen is you find resources in a streamlined way where you're not going to 17 different people to ask how you do X, Y, or Z, and you're not you know, driving 15 places across town to figure it out. And that's really what, what the Riveter tries to do is be a centralized place where you can find both the skills and the community that can help you get to the next phase. I mean, I see conversations happen between our members all the time where they're saying, oh, when I when I was in this stage, I did X, Y, or Z, or, you know, this platform might help you get to the next place to grow your business. And that's what the place is built for. And I'm so proud whenever I get to see those interactions happening.
0: Absolutely. You know, I, I want to talk a little bit about Seattle in the context of all this because you opened your first space uh, here in Seattle. And uh, for a number of reasons, it really does seem like the perfect fit for what you're doing. So talk about your connection to the community of Seattle.
2: Yeah, I mean Seattle is such an incredible community to grow this movement from. Um, Seattle is a really dynamic city that is experiencing incredible growth, and it's growing both, you know, in the technology industry through Amazon and the continued growth of Microsoft and so many exciting startups, but also in the services industry and also in the future of work. Right, we see so many new businesses growing here, but the interesting issues that permeate. Maybe the right word isn't interesting, but the hard issues that permeate women in business across the country, we also see here. And that's why I think it's so important that we started in this community.
0: Yeah. And of course, as I mentioned, uh, there's plans to expand this across the country. You already have two locations in Los Angeles. Talk just briefly about the long term vision. How do you see a workspace like the Riveter responding to the evolution in the way that we are working in America?
2: I I think we're built to respond to that by providing this model of of consummate flexibility and also thinking about how women fit into the workplace, which I think is something companies will eventually have to have a reckoning with if they haven't already. Um, But, you know, we have ambitious plans to scale across the country, um, and I don't see anything stopping us. Um, We have plans to open a number of locations next year um, and grow from the west to the east um, to work with dynamic communities of women and allies throughout the country. We're also building a digital platform, which we recently launched, where people can access our programming and events uh, online wherever they are.
0: Which is awesome. So yeah, so coming online, and then uh, potentially to a city near you. um, And you talk about the East Coast and the East Coast, obviously, home to uh, Boston, New York, and then DC. And just before you go, I just do want to kind of ask you a little bit about uh, what's, you know, about to happen in a week. So in addition to your law background, you also served on President Obama's National Finance Committee. Uh, You worked with President Carter's the Carter Center. You are also a contributor to Forbes magazine. And you've written about uh, women's issues for them. Um, I, I guess I should have been saying all that. I said, well, when do you sleep? You know, you're a mother of three. You've got the riveter and all that. Um, but before I let you go, I do want to uh, just get a couple of thoughts about the midterm election. Um, so as we know, the Trump administration and the GOP have been outright hostile to women, uh, most recently seen with the Kavanaugh hearings. But I, I guess on the flip side, we have uh, over the last two years, um, we've seen the Women's March, which was the largest in history. There has been the rise of the Me Too movement. Uh, more women are running for office in 2018 uh, than in any time in history by a huge margin. I'm wondering how you read all of this as we go into next Tuesday's election.
2: Uh, I mean, I think, you know, we're hearing women's voices in a really different way. Um I don't think this is a trend. I think the ground is shifting underneath us. Women are a force. We, you know, we control 85% of consumer spending in this country and we control trillions of dollars of wealth. Um, but yet we have not been represented in the courtrooms in the boardrooms in the halls of government. And I think that that is changing. Um, I think that we're perceiving women's roles differently and understanding that women are capable of, you know, being mothers and being, you know, leaders, which is something I think for a long time America refused to believe. Um, I think it'll be interesting next week to see what happens on Election Day. I have great faith uh, that so many of the women that are running will be elected, and that is incredibly exciting to me. You know, regardless of what side of the aisle these women are on, it's incredibly important that we have more representation of women in government. Um, We, you know, diversity breeds better results, and that's what we all hope for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're, uh, of course, hoping that uh, one side of the aisle prevails over the other, of course. (laughs) course. But, um, Amy Nelson, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And uh, as I said, I will be providing a link to everything we talked about here at IndivisiblePodcast.org. But thank you again so much for joining us. All
2: right. Thank you so much. So, you guys,
0: uh, in this last episode before the midterm election, I wanted to offer up some final thoughts to talk a little bit about where we have been over the last two years to highlight some of the victories, uh, but primarily just to keep us all energized and focused as we head into the final push toward what is, without a doubt, the most important election of our lifetimes. And so to help me do that, I decided to call on our friend Chris Petzold. Uh, Chris is the founder and leader of Indivisible Washington's 8th. She was the very first guest on this podcast. She has been on this podcast more than anybody else. And she is a very dear friend. So I will welcome back to the show, Chris Petzold. Hello, my friend.
1: Hello. Thank you very much.
0: So is it me or is this last month gone by in like slow motion?
1: I... I am so ready for oh, next God. Tuesday to be over.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're living in Trump years, which, you know, it's like dog years, only longer, right?
1: Worse. I, yeah. Just literally the whole sense of time has just been so screwy for me in the past couple of years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And particularly, I think, as, you know, the election gets closer, I mean, this is, you know, the one real opportunity to put a check on what's happening. And so it, there's a lot of anticipation uh, around it, obviously. And so, you know, I want to start by talking about the events of the last week. They are dark, but they do establish so clearly what is at stake in this election with Pipe bombs being sent to prominent Democrats and CNN, uh, the killing of two African-Americans in a grocery store, and then, and of course, the synagogue killings in Pittsburgh, all evidently motivated by Trump's uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, and so in light of all of that, uh, on Facebook, you recently posted a call to everybody that you know, uh, including Republicans and independents, to vote a straight Democratic ticket if for one time in their life. Um, I'd love for you mm-hmm. to repeat what you said on that post.
1: Yeah so as I was absorbing the news uh from the um synagogue shooting on Saturday I was like all of us just I just sad beyond belief and just uh could not believe that this was happening again and it was an AR15 and uh the you know what has turned out to be the worst uh, massacre on U.S. soil of of Jewish uh, people. I, I just and for all of my Jewish friends and I, I just was so incredibly sad. And as you said, in light of everything that happened last week with the mail bombs um, and the killing of two African Americans at a grocery store after the the alleged uh, killer. I guess couldn't make it into a primarily African American church. He decided to go to a grocery store. I just, I just thought, like, what, what is happening? Uh, and you know, I, I keep waiting for my outrage to dry up, but um, I guess it's a good sign that it hasn't. You know, and I just thought, okay, t- next Tuesday it has to be a reckoning on Donald Trump and, and the hate speech. And literally he is stirring up domestic terrorism. And so, like you said, um, I believe this is the most important election of our lifetime. And I've been telling all my democratic and progressive friends that since I first heard Cory Booker say it over a year ago. And, um, but literally, I felt like I wanted to expand my message to just anyone who would listen. I was like, I started my post out with, please listen to me. Please hear me. And I just feel this sense of desperation. And I wanted to reach out to uh, perhaps Republicans or even an independents and say, hey, just this time only, just vote Democrats. You know, and we we just have to. We we have to put a check on Donald Trump. The the Republicans in in Congress right now have completely abdicated their constitutional responsibility as being a co-equal branch of government, and they have let Donald Trump just do this to our country and. I don't know. I mean, maybe someday in history, we will understand why they're doing this. I have many cynical approaches to why Republicans aren't standing up, but we just, everyone has to vote Democrat. And I just thought because Donald Trump is president, there is very little from a policy perspective that Democrats will be able to get through, you know, in terms of laws. And so the risk is actually quite, quite low if one were to think about it from a broad view uh, of, of having, you know, dramatic, uh, you know, progressive policies be made into law from this Congress coming up. And so I thought that the risk uh, for people who are independent or Republicans is, is is much lower uh, than it would be if there was a democratic president say and so just this once, let's let's put some people in office who will hold him to account. And that was my plea.
0: And I think yeah. there will be a psychological check on him because he has been able to, uh, to, to operate basically without fear of consequences, because as you say, there is a complicit Republican Congress uh, who is complicit for, I think, a, a variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. we all know people, Republicans in particular who, you know, quote unquote held their nose to vote for Donald mm-hmm. Trump even though they didn't like him personally. They thought, well, you know, we'll, you know, vote a straight Republican ticket. And so I think it's a really resonant message right now um, that Mm -hmm. I would actually encourage everybody listening to send around to maybe the more, I guess, moderate or independent minded Mm -hmm. voters, because those are the people who are going to swing these elections. And it is just so extraordinarily important to to be able to put a check on what has been happening.
1: Yeah. Hold your nose and vote Democrat this time. There you You go. I mean, if that's if that's how you feel, just you know,
0: just do it for our country. Well, you know, on the more positive side of things, uh, in terms of stakes, I've been thinking a lot about what the Democrats would be able to do if they take back the House. And of course, you know, they're not going to be able to get through anything in terms of legislation, uh, but they will get the gavel in, commu- in committees mm-hmm. like the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, where they can get Trump's tax returns. Uh, the Judiciary Committee can get information about Cambridge Analytica, and uh, the Intelligence Committee can finally subpoena Trump officials and really investigate interference in our elections. And uh, gloriously, Mm -hmm. Adam Schiff uh, will be chair and Devin Nunes will, um, I guess, not, uh, which is great. Uh, Please. Yeah. Maybe most importantly, for what's happening in the immediate, a Democratic House can stop McConnell and the Senate from gutting Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security. So there's all that.
1: Yeah, that's that's very true. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, you know, for all the Republicans trying to say that they will protect pre-existing conditions, let's just pull up the record where the House voted to kill those protections 65 plus times. Let's yep. just pull that record up.
0: The numbers speak for themselves. Um, you know, in yeah. terms of the election here locally in the state, uh, in addition to the many state representative and Senate races that we're all tracking, uh, we also have three very competitive House races, Lisa Brown versus incumbent Kathy McMorris Rogers in the fifth. She is the number four uh, Republican in the Congress. Uh, Carolyn Long just pulled mm-hmm. even with Jamie Herrera-Butler in the third. And in your district, and which also happens to be mine, in the eighth, a recent market watch tally shows the matchup of Dr. Kim Schreiber against a three-time loser, Dino Rossi, as being the most expensive house race in the country right now, with a total of over $25 million being spent. That I was very, very surprised by that. First, I know that your group has been super focused on this race, so obviously it feels important to you, but were you surprised by the fact that it's the most expensive race uh, for the house in, in the country right now?
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah. Although I have been hearing on the doors, people are so sick of the negative ads, which that $25 million has. Gone towards purchasing. um, Yeah, I was I was actually quite surprised. Um, But it just it it goes to show how close the race is here and how important it is to both sides.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the eighth is really kind of turning out to be a bellwether as a district. It was gerrymandered Mm -hmm. in 2010 to be a safe Republican seat. But it's gone for Democratic presidents in almost every election. So that makes it a quintessential swing district. Right.
1: Yep, for sure. Um, and, you know, I just think about that $25 million and if we could just have spent half that on school programs or teachers or, you know, something. But even so, I, I'm, I'm happy to see all of the support coming in on this race uh, because it is so important and hopefully we can swing it.
0: We'll talk about some of the things that Indivisible Washington's 8th has been doing in support of the 8th district congressional race.
1: Yeah, so we have been uh, just giving our folks information about uh, all the canvases uh, that are going on. And it's been, you know, our boots on the ground that have provided a significant amount of support to the campaigns in the 8th and in some of the legislative races. Uh Um, And we also have been um, doing what we're calling some voter education about Dino Rossi. So we kind of caught on to his uh, playbook um, based on our experience with our congressman, Dave Reichert, um, in terms of uh, trying to fly under the radar and paint himself as a moderate. And Dino Rossi ain't no moderate. (laughs) And so we have done various things to try to educate voters um, about Dino and his record. And uh, we put up a website, um, which was just sharing facts. It wasn't any sort of uh, opinion on our side, but it was just, you know, as he tries to say, he's bipartisan. Take a look at how actually extreme he is. Um, And the
0: name of the website is therealdinorossi.com, which will have that indivisiblepodcast.org.
1: Yes, thank you. Um, and we put up two billboards in the district, one um, in, uh, in Wenatchee and one in Auburn, uh, directing people to our website where they can learn about Dina Rossi. So we've, we've been pushing on the positive side, helping uh, Kim Schreier. And we've also been uh, pushing on the other side uh, to educate voters about the real Dina Rossi.
0: Yeah. And I should mention that uh, there will be lots more to come post-election in terms of strategy, no matter what happens in the election. But, you know, I will say that when I started this podcast, I initially uh, had thought about next week's election as the finish line for me. And I know that you did, too. But since then, um, things have changed. And I think we're we're looking through to 2020. So lots more to come on that after the election, as I say, um, So, you know, where we we started our conversation was talking about what an incredibly long couple of years it's been. And I know that you and I have compared notes on where it has gotten to be too much um, and virtually everybody that I know has. How have you kept going over the last couple of years?
1: Yeah, it hasn't been easy on anyone. I feel like I've aged, you know, 10 years, um, but what a privilege it is to do this work. Um, I think honestly, some of what fuels me is my anger. Um, and every time I feel like I can, you know, relax my guard a little bit, um, uh, you know, something like last week happens and I just, my spirit is renewed in this fight. Um, And also, you know, I have tremendous amount of pride um, in our accomplishments as a team and in my firm belief that we are on the right side of history. I think the history books are going to be talking about us um, at this point in our nation's history. Um, And also, I just feel like I'm saving our our country for my son. This is incredibly personal to me. Um, And I'm fighting for the country that I believe in. And honestly, that keeps me going, as well as the amazing uh, community that we've built. Um, So that's a very significant factor in terms of after the election, I just felt like I was so alone. Um, and I certainly
0: don't anymore. Yeah, having a community really has been a major factor for me as well. And, and for most people I know, And this is something that Indivisible just does exceptionally well. Um, I read somewhere that there is a method that vocal choruses use when they have to sustain a note for a long time longer than any one individual could do it. And members uh, apparently take breaths in shifts in, imperceptibly. And that's mm-hmm. sort of like what we do as a community in Indivisible. So somebody needs to take time for themselves, uh, there are other people who will keep it going during that time. Um, Yeah. So you know me. I like to end on a positive note. um, And, you know, it has been a a very ugly couple of years um, and in many ways worse than we could have imagined, particularly with immigration and Kavanaugh and then, of course, the the events of last week. But there have been some bright spots. Uh, So I'll just ask you, for you, what were some of the unexpected bright spots over the last couple
1: of years? Well... I mean, like we were just saying, the incredible community, uh, the dedication of everyone um, really is (laughs) – everyone gives me so much credit for being a a great leader, but it's really the team. I mean, uh, there are so many people that are just so – passionate and dedicated to this cause. So that has definitely been a bright spot. Um, And then, you know, some of our wins along the way. I mean, we saved the ACA and look, now the Republicans are trying to frame it as their, you know, issue, their, you know, the thing that they support. So to me, that is a huge win. Um, And, you know, here in our district, uh, our Republican congressman decided that he wasn't able to, you know, stand being accountable. Um, and so he retired. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was a that was a huge win for our team. Um, and, you know, there have just been some tremendous losses. Uh, but I think we have slowed the losses. Um, and so I'm trying to think of that as a bright spot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And also, I would just point out that there are more women running for office than any time in history uh, by a substantial margin.
1: Yes, I mean, I can't believe I forgot to say that because, you know, with and that was the thing that set me on fire, as I've talked about many times before, was hearing Trump on that on Access Hollywood Day, as I say, um, that is what set me on fire. And then it's just kept burning until now. And so many women, I think, feel the same way um, where we just we just can't let. We just can't let this be. And it's it's past time to have our elected officials look like the population that they represent.
0: Absolutely. It's really hard to believe in 2018 that we are as far as we are from having 50 percent representation uh, for women in our elected government.
1: Not to mention people of color. Yeah, Yeah, and not to to mention people of color. Yeah,
0: we're a long... Yeah. yeah, that's. I would be remiss if I didn't point out that we are a long ways from having a government that actually really reflects the people that it serves. So we got a lot of work to do there. Um, But we've got one last week, actually six days as of this recording, uh, to do everything we can. Uh, A lot of people are tired. I know I'm tired. I know you're tired. Um, How are you advising members to keep pushing through to the finish line?
1: Well you know, we really have the finish line in sight now. I mean, it's been such a long haul, but literally we are in the the last part. And so we really just have uh, one last weekend. In fact, they're calling it the last weekend. Um, and I personally um, encouraging. I'm encouraging everyone who can, or everyone who feels like this is in their capability, to go out and canvass one last time. Uh, focus on getting out the vote. I was at a phone bank last night, um, just one last one. And you know, this weekend, um, I will. I'm kind of excited about this. I was asked asked by Swing Left, who is a partner group of Indivisible. Um, Swing Left has organized a bus from Seattle to go to uh, the 8th District, Um, and myself and my canvasser, partner in crime, Robin Gittleman, will be co-captaining this bus full of folks driving to a bonnie lake which is in the eighth district i think i've only been there once in my life um and we will be uh taking 50, 50 plus volunteers on a canvas in bonnie lake so i'm just super excited about that and i know that uh there are canvases happening in auburn and all over the place this weekend so everyone if they could just make one final push i know that when i wake up next wednesday morning i I will be satisfied to know that I left nothing on the table that we just really uh, put the pedal to the metal the whole time. um, And we never let up and we did the best that we could. And uh, we'll just know that we did everything we could in this race.
0: Yeah. And I I think that's the, the feeling that, that most of us really want to have. We can't ultimately control the outcome individually, but canvassing, phone banking, Mm -hmm. doing everything we can in this final push. Well, Chris, um, thank you for your leadership. Uh, thank you for your friendship. Uh, let's do this thing.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it, everybody. Keep going.
0: Well, you heard of you guys. So, uh, look, before I go, I do want to say a very heartfelt thank you to all of the members of Indivisible who have been such a constant source of strength and positivity through these last two years. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your listenership. And thank you most of all for your tireless work. And regardless of what happens next Tuesday, I am so grateful for all of you and you all inspire me. So thank you. I will mention that the show will be off next week. I am going to take a little time for myself as I imagine most of you all will be as well. So we will talk to you on November 14th. That will do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there too. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. Thank you again to my guests, Amy Nelson and Chris Petzold. And as always, thanks to you guys for listening. Let's do this on November 6th. Talk to you next time. Bye.